Welcome back. This is Nature of Business, and I'm your host, Chrissy Coughlin. Thank you for sticking around this beautiful Thursday afternoon. I'm very pleased to have with us now Alan Savory. He was um, born in Zimbabwe, educated in South Africa, and he pursued as an early career uh, as a research biologist and game ranger in the British Colonial Service, of which he was then Northern Rhodesia, today Zambia. And later he became a farmer and a game rancher in Zimbabwe, and now he is director of the Savory Institute, and he's going to be talking to us all about his work on holistic management. Welcome, Alan. Thank you, Chrissy. Uh, well, how are you doing today? <laughs> Well, thank you, and relieved I got my TED talk over yesterday. So I'm I relieved, was going so. to say, absolutely. I'm so excited that that uh, I get to speak with you on the um, heels of that because I'm sure it was was very exciting. Um, well, thank you for being here. I, I want to. It's, it's such an important topic. Your work is 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 so gravely important. What you do. Let, talk to us about the Savory Institute and and really what your lifelong mission has been in terms of uh, holistic management. Uh, very briefly, the uh, Savory Institute is just where we operate from Boulder on uh, over five continents, where we now have people beginning to manage holistically on about uh, 15 million hectares, um, and we operate that from Boulder. And then we have another organization that I uh, also founded in, in Zimbabwe, the Africa Center for Holistic Management, and I spent about half the year there, and there we have been training people from the Cape to Ethiopia uh, on this, and uh, so those are the two entities that I uh, formed, yeah. Okay. Can you give our listeners a background of, of I, I, I did a very cursory background of, of you, but give our listeners a little bit of a, of a sense of who you are and how this all came about, how your work has been a, really a lifelong endeavor to this point. Um, well, uh, I began, like like everybody uh, who was concerned with the environment and um, with desertification, which is just a fancy word for land turning to desert, which is happening on about two-thirds of the world's land, where the, uh, you have months of humidity followed by dry months, and uh, it occurs if we expose a lot of bare ground. And um, I began, became very concerned with that. And we all know that it's uh, due to livestock overgrazing plants, leaving the ground bare, and um, giving off methane. And everybody knows that, uh, as I said yesterday, from Nobel laureates to golf caddies, always taught it, and I was taught that at university and school. And so, uh, coming from Africa, I, I loved wildlife, and I hated livestock because of the damage they were doing. Uh, but we, we were actually all wrong. We were just as certain once that the world was flat, and, and we were wrong then, and we were wrong again. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. The only thing, the only thing available to science, as I found after many years of struggling with this problem, uh, that can reverse desertification and, um, in fact, tackle climate change realistically, is livestock properly handled. But it. You know, we didn't understand that for thousands of years, and it took a long time to sort it out because of our beliefs. We had these deep beliefs that uh, that assume scientific validity, but there's no science behind them. So uh, that's what I've been working on uh, all these years, and it's terribly critical to to the world because um, 
you know, even after we eliminate fossil fuels, they're not the only thing causing climate change. Desertification and agriculture is causing it um, as much as and possibly more than fossil fuels. And nobody's talking about that because our mm -hmm. beliefs are that it's only being caused by, you know, livestock and fossil fuels. But that's just not true. How do we actually get people engaged in the conversation of, of, of desertification? I mean, it's, it's, it's tough for people who are, let's say, living in a city um, who are being bombarded by the media saying it's fossil fuels, it's fossil fuels, and they're around fossil fuels. They see cars, they see trains, they see planes, uh, uh, it, it, they, but they're not in open space. How do we get that, those people into the conversation and make well, it real to them. Yeah, the only way that is known to us to do that is, is public opinion. That's the media. It's interviews like this. It's things like I did yesterday on TED, which will go out on video to millions of people, hopefully, uh, and so that the public get to know the realities and authorities can't block information anymore. It's not just happening politically like with Arab Springs. Um, authorities can be scientific authorities, academic authorities, political authorities, and throughout history, uh, new breakthroughs, new paradigms, new thinking has always been blocked by authorities. And thanks to the Internet and communication today, we are going to be able to get information out to young people, the, the people who have got to face the future, and uh, that's the only way it's going to happen. And I'm not just giving my opinion. Mm -hmm. I've been looking at the research, the social research, how change occurs in democratic uh, societies. And the only way change, real change, occurs is public opinion. Mm -hmm. but this doesn't seem to me to be... Um, it, when, when you explain holistic management to somebody, there's nothing to me that seems highly controversial. So when... You were trying to educate the public, yes, that's very important, but educating the decision makers and policy makers, why, is, why would it be such a tough sell to them? Uh, because of beliefs. It's, it's, not, it's, it's not personal or anything like that. It's happened to, I, I'm just talking now from my own experience of 50 years of trying to get this sim profoundly simple mm. message out. Um, you know, it's happened to everybody from before Galileo that, um, <clears throat> you know, authority figures block the information. So let, let me try and make that clear. The the belief, as, and I showed this with pictures yesterday, is, is this total one that, say, livestock are causing desertification, as I said. And then I recounted my own experience where when we set aside, uh, when I was a young biologist in Africa, we set aside future wonderful areas of Africa to be uh, national parks, but no sooner did we remove the hunting, drum-beating people to protect the animals than the land began to deteriorate, and then no livestock were involved. But I began to suspect we had too many elephants, and mm. so I did the research and I proved we had too many, uh, inverted commas. And uh, that was political dynamite because I recommended we would have to reduce their numbers to a level the land could sustain. So our government at that time formed a team of experts and they looked at my research and evaluated it. They agreed with me. So in the following years, we went ahead and shot 40,000 elephants. And mm -hmm. the problem got worse. It didn't get better. 
so really I'll carry that to my grave that that was my biggest stupidity and blunder of my life uh, because I was just following my scientific training mm-hmm. and but it didn't the good thing out of it it made me determined to find solutions and then when I came to the United States as a political refugee as I did I was shocked to find you know a worse situation here and I showed pictures of this yesterday and we uh, often do of national parks here where there's been no livestock for 70 years desertifying and just gullies and erosion and bare ground worse than anything I've dealt with or as bad as anything I've dealt with in Africa and Mm -hmm. when I talked with American scientists about that I found they had no explanation they just said it was arid and natural well it's not natural and then I began looking at research stations research plots all over the western United States from California, Arizona, New Mexico, etc., where livestock had been removed totally to prove that it would stop the land turning to desert. And I found the opposite. I found all of the research plots were turning to desert. So again, I Mm -hmm. I showed pictures of those um, yesterday, uh, including one prominent research station where between 1961, when it was green grassland, to 2002 it had turned to virtual desert and the I took those pictures from a position paper on climate change in this country and the authors of that uh, paper attributed that change to unknown processes so you know as I pointed out we've we've never understood what is causing desertification and it's totally counterintuitive what is causing it is overresting the land and we mm-hmm. kept blaming too many animals and what had happened was, you know, changing the behavior of animals by removing pack-hunting predators, which had existed in the past and the very, very large numbers of grazing animals that came from the seasonal grassland world. It didn't matter whether they were bison or elephants or cattle or goats. What happened was we changed the behavior of animals, and once they no longer feared predation, they bunched less because that was their protection against that level of predation, and they lingered longer. So you look anywhere in the United States and you'll find cattle destroying the riparian areas, lingering on them day after day, and that was the same thing I was experiencing with the elephants in in Africa. They had become tame, and they were just lingering and destroying the vegetation while they were over-resting the land. So Mm -hmm. you can see all of that is counterintuitive, and why we just didn't understand it for 10,000 years while desertification was, you know, gathering momentum worldwide and destroying one civilization after another. And it's Mm -hmm. profoundly simple. Any gardener would understand it quickly. Sure, sure. For those of you who are just tuning in, I'm speaking with Alan Savory. He's a Zimbabwean biologist, farmer, soldier, exile, environmentalist, uh, and founder of the Savory Institute. So the the I'm I'm curious about the human the human component to this because you need to convince the farmers and the sheep herders, etc., the people who who um, own a lot of these animals to adopt holistic management and to understand it. What has been your experience in communicating this concept to, to people of, of so many different cultures? Well, that the, the problem isn't there. The problem is, is in our educational institutes, governments, environmental organizations, development organizations. 
you know, again, we're, we're working with pastoralists, uh, Samburu and so on, in northern Kenya and in the most violent region of the world, where 95% of the land approximately can only feed people from animals, not from crops, not from anything else, only animals. Only animals can digest grass. And yet those entire cultures are being destroyed by development agencies and so on, reducing their animal numbers. And we're working with pastoralists there, teaching them how to put their animals together to mimic nature, heal the land, and they're openly saying this is the only thing that can save our families, save our culture. And so they're not the problem. The problem is 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 coming from the United Nations, from governments, from universities, from all down who believe in a flat world that you know that livestock are causing desertification, which is simply. It's the way livestock are run. It's not the livestock mm-hmm. per se. So, they, you know, the, the fact that we already are, have people managing holistically on 15 million hectares on five continents is because ordinary people don't have a problem. Uh, they understand this and, and are moving with us on it. The, the difficulty is to get policies, uh, you know, supporting them and remove the barriers to, to them being able to sensibly manage their their land and, and so on. Where is the where where is the uh, like which continent, for instance, do you find to have the most widespread problem? No, no, it's it's everywhere. It's everywhere. And, and okay. I showed pictures of this from space yes, uh, yesterday. If mm-hmm. you look from space, you, you know, and you look at the the world, you can see the green areas and you can see brown areas, and the the and the two merge into each other but the the green areas are where desertification is not occurring mm-hmm. that's like England and parts of Germany and France and the east and west coasts of the United States where you've got perennial humidity you're guaranteed humidity almost throughout the year and in those environments it's almost impossible to create millions of acres of, of bare ground you just can't do it whether you use chemis- chemicals or machinery or fire or overgrazing or anything, the soil quickly covers up. And, and when civilizations failed in the past in these humid environments, we find their ruins under recovered vegetation because resting the land is the most powerful thing we can do to restore biodiversity and soil cover. And so conservation is working in those regions of the world. But when you look at most of the world, about two-thirds, which, is, which sort of shows brown from space, those are the areas of seasonal rainfall. And there, it's very easy to create a high percentage of bare soil over millions and millions of acres, like you have almost over the entire western United States, where you can go at random anywhere, even into grasslands that are classified as good to excellent condition and you'll find anywhere up to 80 or 90 percent of the soil between the plants is bare. Now any gardener understands that if, if you've got most of the soil bare and crusted with algae, when you do get rain it runs off as floods or if it soaks into the soil it evaporates out just like it does in your garden if you leave the soil uncovered. And so right. that's what's happening over most of the world's land that's why you've got so many floods that's why you've got so many droughts but they're all man-made they're not made by the climate yet they are what is changing the climate as well as oil and and, and gas Um, Mm -hmm. and now the 
the, the that high amount of bare soil that you've got all over Australia, all over North Africa, right through the former Soviet republics to China, almost all over the United States and masses of areas of South America, etc., that high percentage of bare soil, the only two things that cause it that I can find, and we've never discovered any other cause, and the two things that cause it are fire or too few animals on the land. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So... What what is the role of uh, I mean it's a little bit your work is 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 daunting in the sense that you're you're you know you're talking about the the UN and, and major governments and major universities and trying to get through to them and 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 how challenging that is how about business I mean can business can agro business play a big part of this or are they behind you in any way is that is that helping push policy at all um, that. That's the other part of, of agriculture that they're playing a major role in, and they have never opposed, uh, you know, what I'm saying. Um, that, you know, the financial vested interest has never opposed it yet, and they could play a tremendous role. And that's why it's it's glad that we begin. You know, I'm glad that we're beginning to connect with those sort of people because they do care. Mm-hmm. But uh, you've got two. Really, if you look at agriculture and and corporate agriculture is involved in a major part of it as you know uh, when you say agriculture to most people they think crop production but mm-hmm. crop productions only on about 18% of the world's land and agriculture really is not crop production it's the production of food and fiber from the world's land and water so you've got about 82% of the world's land that is under agriculture but not crops and almost nobody is talking about that and then if you look at agriculture as a whole uh, you know it is producing way more eroding soil than food Um, soil scientists here in the United States um, calculate that we're producing about four tons of eroding soil okay for every human alive today Um, the average human eats about half a ton of food a year to maybe a little somewhere around there. The average American eats about one ton of food per year. So if you even look at just the American figures, if an American eats one ton of food, but we're producing four tons of eroding soil just from the croplands, then that's ignoring the massive erosion on the other 82% of the land. So I do not have figures, and I don't know how you would work them out, but it's a safe guess to say that we're probably producing five to ten times the amount of damaged tonnage of damaged soil that we are for every half ton of food for people. It, it's the most yeah. frightening statistic in the world, but nobody's talking about it. It's like the elephant in the room. Right, 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 right. Now, t- tell me, you, it, it'd be fun to talk about uh, your your TED talk last night because it really you know obviously that is extremely exciting that it just happened and you're reaching an audience that I'm sure in some instances we don't have the luxury of seeing the before and after pictures that you show during your talks but uh, I'm sure that there were many people jaw dropped that couldn't believe you know what they were seeing and, and learned yeah. quite a bit tell us a little bit about you know about this talk last night I, I was very pleased, you know, to have such a responsive audience, but I expect it, you know, because any audience is responsive as long as they're not trained 
in this field. You know, the finest candle makers in the world couldn't even conceive of electric lights. Um, the finest um, horse and buggy cart makers in the world couldn't even conceive of the, you know, motor cars. And uh, so the changes always come from people on the fringes, people looking at the data differently, not steeped in the paradigm or the belief. And so I, I expected a good response yesterday, and I got it because many people are gardeners, they've got common sense, and when they see the evidence and it's unarguable and the science is unarguable, they responded extremely well, and that, that was nice. And, and the, the young people and the, the world will if we can just get the information to them. Right, right. So, what is going on in higher education? What are you seeing from your from your perspective? What are you seeing happening in major universities that are perhaps agriculturally based? Do you see that there's hopeful trends there? Uh, the only hope I see, because we're talking about paradigm shifting stuff, the only hope I see is in young people. Okay. You know, yes, just questioning. Um, as I did when I was a young person, I began to question what I was taught, and we just need more questioning, and uh, that that will move it. People. Uh, the the other thing that's going on, and and I have great faith in ordinary people, and I saw this recently when I was in Hamburg in Germany. I was at a big agricultural conference, and I stayed there for four days, and went out in the field with farmers from Japan and America and Germany and Denmark and UK and everywhere and I, I realized there's a tremendous lot of knowledge amongst these farmers and uh, and I was looking at well why doesn't it get applied and uh, we were talking about a problem out in the field in, in Denmark when I was there and um, and I was saying well why don't you do this you know which is obvious and people just said well we can't because of law and regulation and I began to realize my goodness, this is what I'm seeing in almost every country, is tremendous knowledge amongst the farmers, but because of um, government policies leading to laws and regulations, they, they can't do what they need to do. And so if we can just begin to free up the creativity of people and, and remove the barriers to sensible scientific management of agriculture, I really believe that we've got almost all the knowledge we need to begin to produce more food than eroding soil. Mm -hmm. But the, the big blockages are coming from government policies that are, are faulty. And in support of that, you know, in the Carter administration days, the USDA uh, commissioned me and got me to train 2,000 people approximately from all the government agencies and land-grant colleges, faculty, some came from World Bank and USAID and others, and so we did that training. And all I was doing was showing them how to use the holistic framework to be able to look at each thing socially, environmentally, and economically, each policy and so on. And I got them to bring their own policies uh, to the training and mm -hmm. analyze them themselves. So it's not my opinion I'm giving. They couldn't find a single policy in the United States that they brought that would meet its objective, would not lead to unintended consequences, and that was tackling the cause of the problem and not a symptom. And, and one group in training with me had quite a heated discussion about that, 
and then they made a statement which we recorded verbatim and I put it in my textbook where they said we now recognize that unsound resource management is universal in the United States now I found the same in India the same in Africa the same everywhere I've been so it's not that we're stupid it's not that we don't have the knowledge there's there's a flaw in the way we formulate policies mm-hmm. and I'm not a wise person or anything I just discovered that by accident while I was trying to sort out why is it we cannot solve this problem of the environment always deteriorating wherever humans go mm-hmm. and by accident I found oh my goodness I've hit on something bigger and that is a way that you could simply train people in any government any environmental organization anything how to begin to formulate policies differently because I really believe almost everybody is trying to do the right thing we're not trying to do the wrong thing but Mm -hmm. if you think about it everything we make is a success the buildings the planes the bombs the space exploration but that's using technology for things we make but then if you look at what we manage whether it's oceans or forests or agriculture or desertification when you look at the things we're managing we're running into problems worldwide and there's a reason for that because all the things we're managing involve complexity mm-hmm. and all the things we make don't involve complexity right so right. so yeah accidentally i hit on a profoundly simple way of beginning to address complexity right are there are there major economic barriers that are happening regardless of of whether there's just misinformation out there is there something going on economically that is inhibiting these governments from from moving forward on 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 holistic management practices oh yeah there's uh, and there was a very good speaker yesterday uh, pointing out the the tremendous influence of the few people who have an enormous amount of money who mm-hmm. influence lobbyists and the whole of Congress here, you know, and, and so on in the United States and how that skews everything away from what we need to be doing. So you know, there are people aware of it and, you know, I don't have to tell you economically the situation is pretty chaotic worldwide and, and again, there's, there's good reason for that because of the complexity we're dealing with and when you think about it the only form of wealth that can sustain humans and nations in the long run is through the photosynthetic process in other words green plants you know on healthy soils um, that's the only thing that can sustain us in the long run and if you just look at the one statistic I gave earlier that we're producing way more damaged soil than we are food that statistic alone tells you that economic systems are not going to work we've got to rethink them and we've got to have as the foundation and I don't know how we'll do this but there are people much smarter than I am who are becoming aware of this the foundation is going to have to be agriculture and we've had a disconnect from this for a long time and I think one of the, the best signs of our disconnect from reality is actually Nobel Prizes. You know, when Alfred Nobel came up with that wonderful idea of influencing young scientists and getting the best brains focused on human needs, 
they decided everything that was very important and they argued about mathematics and some things but you know we have Nobel Prizes for physics and chemistry and all these mm. things but you notice there's none for agriculture or the environment mm. and without agriculture and the environment you can't have a Nobel Prize you can't have a church you can't have an army you can't have a government so the most important thing to humanity we didn't even regard as important enough to warrant a Nobel Prize. And so amazing. the disconnect uh, amongst us as scientists has been there for a long time. Right, right. For those of you just tuning in, I'm speaking with Alan Savory, a Zimbabwean biologist, farmer, soldier, exile, environmentalist, and head of the Savory Institute who has really dedicated his, uh, his life to uh, studying the management of grasslands. So what what is the savory institute what are what are your plans for the next let's say 20 years or so of your work life what do you what do you what what do you hope to accomplish well i just hope to live for another 20 no i i i, <laughs> I was assume i'm saying you're going to live you're going to live for another 20 years <laughs> no what what, what we're yeah. trying to accomplish is uh, we've the this training entity uh, place we have in Zimbabwe, I actually donated a ranch for it to, to the people of Africa for the benefit of Africa, and I didn't realize how big that was going to be. And we've, I mentioned earlier, we've been training people from the Cape to Ethiopia, and we've seen this tremendous impact of having a place where people can come to and actually see what you're talking about. And, and we've got water, water lilies, fish, geese, where we haven't had water for a hundred years. And we've done that with no technology, nothing but just curb the fires and increase the livestock 400%, managing them to mimic nature. And we integrate them with the lions, the leopards, the cheetahs, the hyenas, in a predator-friendly manner, and with the elephants and the buffalo and the giraffe. And when people come and see that, and see that we're actually now protecting bare ground on some sites, just for wildlife needs, that had a big impact. So seeing that, we said, all right, what we need is a hundred sites like this around the world. Right. So we're launching a strategy to, to get learning sites like that where everybody can just pull together and seek solutions, not fight and argue as we do, but just seek solutions. And so we want these to be locally managed, locally led, and then we'll provide a, a sophisticated internet sort of uh, platform to keep them all connected and learning. So that's really the main thrust we're doing because it, it, ordinary people are going to solve these problems and they can do and so we want to get a hundred of these hubs around the world as I say locally led, locally managed, entrepreneurial, get young people involved and let's just begin solving these problems because there's nobody at the helm. You know, Everybody thinks well we're going into climate change and populations rising to towards 10 billion and somebody's in charge somebody's planning somebody's thinking ahead right. there's nobody there isn't anybody and no so there's let's just start fallacy. with ordinary people and start putting it right 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 so well i'm going to ask you one one final question um are you 
I, I mean, I don't think you would continue this work if you weren't hopeful. Um, it really, if this is done right, and if we're able to educate people and to have massive, massive systemic change here, the, the results will be wonderful. And it doesn't seem like it's insurmountable, but it's pretty challenging. Are you, are you optimistic? Are you, are you excited about a specific project right now? T t tell me what your general feeling is. Well, I'm I'm highly optimistic, and, and I, I actually wrote that in in the second edition of, of uh, the book I wrote. In the last chapter, I said I'm more optimistic than I ever could have been in the history of humanity, mm -hmm. and, and the reason I, I said that, and I, I listed five reasons. The first one was desertification is is a bigger problem than fossil fuels, because as I said earlier, you know even after fossil fuels, the climate change will continue if we don't do something about agriculture and, and desertification, well, we, we didn't know the cause of it. So if we'd been having this discussion in the days when the Roman Empire was collapsing or the, the forests of southern Persia were turning to desert when Alexander's armies, you know, recorded <laughs> marching through forests, if right. we'd been very concerned then, we couldn't have done anything about it because we didn't know what was causing it. We've discovered what's causing it now. So that's one thing in place. Uh, the other thing that we didn't have in place, even if we'd known it then, we wouldn't have known that the Americas existed and Australia existed and humans had already arrived there. Humans were already killing off most of the animals and replacing their role with fire. So we wouldn't have known that. Now we do. The, the other thing is, even if we'd, again, been back in the Roman times, very concerned about the future, we wouldn't have known that things like ozone depletion could occur or that mm. carbon would pollute the atmosphere because we didn't have the technology to understand that. We have it now. We understand right. it. And then the other thing, we've got to act like a, as some people have called it a global village. We've got to communicate around the world uh, and almost instantaneously. We didn't have the technology. We have it now. And there, there's only one piece l still missing that I could see, and this is a bit more than 10 years ago when I wrote that, and we need something to unite us. And as I looked at the global situation uh, throughout history, the only thing that's ever united us is war. You know, we, we will, war or tragedy. So if you see a, somebody fall into a flooded river, you don't look at him and say, is he black, is he white, is he Jew, is he Protestant? You jump in mm -hmm. and save him, he's a human. Right, 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 exactly. And as soon as the crisis is over, we're back to squabbling and fighting and fearing each other. But we do unite in times of war, like the, the War of the Roses, a hundred years. Um, so right. we'll unite then. But So we needed something to unite us as humans that wasn't a wretched war. Right. And the only thing I could see that could possibly unite us as humans is climate change. And mm -hmm. so, you, you know, once we can get over this ridiculous denial uh, of climate change, then no. we can begin to do something about it. And, and that's beginning to emerge and I know yes. there are probably many listeners who, who think climate change isn't happening so in the talk yesterday I, I made it as clear as I can I just said to people look take one square yard of soil and clear off the plant litter and bear it expose it and I promise you it'll get much colder at dawn and much hotter at midday you've mm -hmm. changed the mm -hmm. microclimate now by the okay. time you're doing that over more than half the world's land, and 
and you're exposing anywhere up to 80-90% of the soil between the plants, you're right. changing macroclimate. So anybody who thinks climate isn't changing is just not understanding simple gardening. Absolutely. Well, wow. Thank you so, so very much, Alan, for, for, for taking the time today. This was absolutely terrific. All right. Thank you so much for listening to Nature of Business this week. Uh, thrilled to have you. Um, that was a terrific conversation with Alan Savory. I will have that up on the site um, soon, and it will be up on Green Biz as well. So uh, hopefully everybody learned quite a bit from that. Um, terrific conversation. You can find me at natureofbusiness.fm. You can also find me on Facebook at Nature Business, and my Twitter feed is Nature Biz Radio. Have a wonderful week, and I'll see you next week, same time, same place, on Nature Business.